Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. I'm going to just turn it over to Matt. Matt, go forth and conquer, please. And uh, the floor is yours, but there's two burning questions that I'm getting from folks online. One okay. of them is, why did OSU's perfusion program close? Is one of those questions. Um, and uh, I'll look for the other one. But that's so, you may want to be thinking about that in your talk, because you're going to be talking about, I think, uh, uh, the perfusion market, where it's going, new schools opening up, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and when you asked me to do this talk, you know, I, I, I am not, uh, you know, on the perfusion programs directors council, never have been, you know, quite a few people that are, but, um, you know, I, I, I do have a little bit of a, a, a background in business. I have, uh, I have a, a, a business degree as well, post-perfusion degree, and so I, this talk is really more to present facts and data um, that is, and maybe more importantly, that is not available and discuss the holes. Um, and then, you know, take a, a broader look and really discuss the scenarios that may or may not happen in the future based on some of our actions uh, as, as a profession, um, as individuals, and as a society. Um, but, you know, perfusion, you know, it, you know, there's big changes, Joe, panel there, you guys have a lot more experience than I do. Um, you've seen the market change um, uh, in perfusion. And when I say market, you know, business definitions of service that takes place, um, you know, resulting in buyers and sellers being in contact and want to know, you know, you know, that and sometimes there's mediating agents, uh, you know, we're getting to perfusion contract companies, uh, large, small, indifferent. Um, but, but, you know, perfusion market, it's always been a buyer's and a seller's market based on supply and demand. And, it's, you know, and it's an evolution of things, you know, there's highs and lows uh, in the market. Um, and some are good uh, for the perfusionists. Some are good for the, uh, you know, the, the buyers. Um, but really perfusion, is, you know, I see the service as a commodity. And I don't want to discount our, our um, what, what I want to say, I don't want to discount our, uh, individualism and our skill set, um, but the service really, um, because of ACPE, KF, and a lot of the management of, uh, of of the education process, it is a commodity to where you know um, it's it's got fungibility to where you know they're interchangeable parts. Um, every perfusionist that graduates after they you know after they take their boards. You know, they should really be nearly equivalent. I, and I heard someone talk earlier about, you know, we were talking about pediatric uh, perfusion. You know, is that a separate um, entity uh, or should that be a separate license? Well, you know, when everybody graduates and passes the board now, they're nearly equivalent to a baseline threshold. And there's really no regards, uh, you know, who produced them or where they were produced. Now, there are, I will, I will say there's distinguishable differences but everybody should have a, a baseline or a threshold that they meet. And so that's kind of what I want to, I want to wrap up about. That's kind of my preamble to this talk. So next slide. So, you know, I, I, I try to do some research uh, concerning where we're, you know, where this is at. Um, and really there's going to be a nine, there's 900,000 open heart procedures 
could be done this year. Uh, now there is a little bit of a bump because of COVID last year, and uh, in that 900,000, don't know how many of those are going to be affiliated with a perfusionist. Uh, you know, there's tavers in there. There's tavers that perfusionists cover. Other places, tavers don't get covered by perfusionists. Um, but there's no doubt about it that there's about a five percent increase that's happened and will continue to happen through uh, 2026. So you know, that's, estimates are that 1.3 million procedures, cardiac procedures, are going to be done in 2026. It's a 5% increase. The, the best study that I found out there um, is in JACT. It was a 2019 study published in 2020. Um, it talks about uh, you know, vacancy rates, turnover rates, the profession, salaries. Um, it's the most contemporary thing we have. Um, what I found very interesting, and this is, you know, this all relates back to, you know, where is the market going? Where is our education going? Um, the most common response to address the critical shortages from the people that were polled, um, they want they want to hire temporary staff. So they want, you know, they want traveling perfusions, or they want, uh, you know, PRN perfusions to come in to help with these highs and lows, uh, you know, whether it's uh, shortages because of maternity leave, illnesses short-term, um, you know, peaks and troughs within their practice. Uh, that, that was the number one answer uh, to, uh, or one, number one solution to the problem of, uh, you know, critical shortages. Um, the other one, uh, you know, next, they talked about uh, total compensation of raising the compensation, whether it was in bonus structure or, you know, uh, some sort of uh, additional hour compensation, kind of a, a gap coverage type thing. Um, provide temporary incentives that, that came along there as well. Uh, but more importantly, uh, and we, we've done this here at Vanderbilt, we've changed our staffing model. And so, you know, that was also an alternative, although that was the, the least, uh, that was the, the, the least, uh, I guess, uh, mentioned a solution to the, uh, to the clinical shortage. Um, and, you know, the vacancy rate that they talked about in the study, which was 12.3% uh, across all perfusion Large contract perfusion groups uh, were the, the highest in vacancy rates. Uh, pediatric perfusionists were the lowest um, in vacancy rates and turnover. Um, a lot of a lot of that uh, has to do with you know, the round robin or domino effect of jobs. It's the same jobs that are always opening. But what I thought was very interesting, if you if you would say that there was a 12.3% vacancy rate or a 14.7% turnover rate. In any professional medical professional society, that, that that that's a that's an extremely high uh, rate. So I I'm unsure if we can you know correlate perfusion with nursing, perfusion with anesthesiologists, perfusion with cardiac surgeons even uh, even though the, the the numbers are similar cardiac surgeons. Uh, you know you mentioned Joe earlier that the the nursing staff uh, across the country is no you know much much larger. We're not even a drop in that bucket. So when we say, I don't think we can really correlate our numbers, uh, our, the percentages, with any other medical profession. So I'm unsure of the value of those numbers. That's just my personal opinion. Um, and then the other thing I found very interesting in this article, uh, it says that uh, the likelihood of bringing in perfusion students to help out with, quote, labor, involved in the practices, uh, they were very, very 
much against that. And I found that very interesting. Um, it, it was just, it was the least popular choice among the respondents uh, to mitigate the staffing shortages. And uh, I, I did get a quote out of, out of there. It was, it, with, with combined, these answers appear to show a significant headwind to the expansion of clinical sites for confusion training programs, which leads us in to our next problem. Next slide. So what we're, what we're running into here, if, if you look at these numbers, these are what we know. This is published uh, AB, ABCP annual report. And if you look at the numbers, um, you know, I think they show the last 19 or 20 years here. Over the last six years, we have generated nearly 200 new certified perfusions every year. But more importantly, in those six years, we've had an average net gain of nearly 100 from what we have new to what we have lost in the same period. And more importantly, in the last three years, it's been greater than 100 gains. So I'm unsure, um, the, the, I'm unsure if this trend is going to stay the same, um, if it's going to change or people going to retire. Um, and in, in the next slide, I'm going I'm to pose some questions. I'd like to have some people's input and thought processes, especially the panelists that we have today, on their thoughts of on the ebb and cycle they've seen in their careers and what, what they think the future holds. Next slide. So what we have here is these are the, these are the 17 or 18 accredited uh, that are on uh, the KHEP site. Now, I will say that I, I've been told, and I will defer to the panel so somebody knows more. I believe Barry is closing um, shortly. And then uh, the University of Utah and then the University of Texas Health Science Center, they're on the, they're on the, the, the KHEP website. Uh, but additionally, there's another five programs that are opening or going to open within the next two years. So you're looking somewhere on the lines of between 20 and 22 programs that are going to be available. Um, one of those programs are, are looking to have 40 to 50 students per class. Um, and so when, when you're seeing these type of numbers and these type of programs with the, the numbers of classes, students, it, it seems like the trend of the ABCP's annual report, it's only going to increase. And uh, the number of perfusions are going to continue to increase that are uh, being put out there. The real question is, is will they will they outpace retirements or people getting out of the profession? And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Next slide. So what we don't know, like I just stated, will perfusion graduates overcome the rate of retirees. Um, in, in another study uh, that I'll, I'll reference here later, uh, they talk about that almost 39% of perfusionists in 2015 were going to retire within the next 10 years. Uh, when you think about that number, 39, that's 40%. That's it's nearly 2,200 perfusionists at that time, um, at, at maybe a little bit under 18, 1,900 uh, at, in 2015. But the real question is, is, we had some really dynamic worldwide events that happened in 2016 and 2020. So 2016 had the economic crisis. May, people may have pushed off retirement because, of, the, because of, the, of their savings and their retirement savings. And then 2020 with COVID, did we push more perfusionists out to get out of the field early? Or did, did with the economic turndown in early 2020, did we, did we push some people back later in retirement as well. Those are the questions that you know, I think are still to be answered. 
And then will the perfusionist workforce be able to keep pace with the increased cases and complexity? By, by far, we are getting sicker and sicker patients every day. And those procedures are taking longer and longer. Even though the surges, uh, you know, are, are, are technology is getting better, I think technology, you know, breeds a, a, better, uh, a better clinician. Uh, the, 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 I think the patient's acuity outpaces the technology. And we're, and we're doing more and more on people that are sicker and sicker. Um, additionally, what's the impact of ECMO on perfusion? We talked about having different certifications and having uh, ECMO technicians. Um, I, I think there is a need for that, but I don't think, uh, personally, I think a perfusionist is the perfect uh, you know, trained person uh, to, uh, to be able to manage multiple ECMO patients at, at the same time. Um, and so I think with the increase in COVID, uh, ECMO uh, this year, I just wonder how many, how many perfusionists we're going to need to subsidize uh, the increase in volume of ECMO. And then it turns, you know, that turns into burnout. When you, when you don't, when you can't have more people or you're asking people to work more, even with compensated or not compensated, how much does that attribute to, to burnout and people getting out of the profession as soon as they can? Um, and, and then the other question I see is having students come in, when you Google perfusion or you Google um, what, is the, what is the highest paid postgraduate profession out there, perfusion is definitely in the top five. And so are we getting perfusionist uh, students that are coming into the field because they're able to Google, um, you know, what the income level is? Uh, are, are people getting into the, I question uh, sometimes, are people getting into the field because they really want to do perfusion or, you know, they Googled, Googled something that's going to pretty be, that's lucrative as of this moment. Uh, that, that's the real question I have. Next slide. And this is a study. Um, I think if anybody really wants to, it, I think this study uh, and, and this review was outstanding. Uh, uh, Mr. Colligan wrote this and, um, with, with some, some help, but it was, it was published uh, mid-year uh, mid last year in Czech. Um, I think it's spot on uh, on everything that they say. I, I, I completely agree, uh, but one of the more important things I've, about it is what I've highlighted here. Um, it says, in summary, we just don't have the answers. Um, we're such a small society that just a little bit of movement um, in one direction or the other makes big ripples. And um, we really don't have anything other than the 2016 workforce study um, that I've seen uh, that, that really can answer any questions. We've had such, uh, such a change in some of the dynamic structures surrounding not only the, uh, the, the involvement of the number of cases that we do, the type of cases we do, ECMO increased, down, decreased, but also the age of our profession. Um, you know, at Vanderbilt, the, age of, uh, the average age of our staff, uh, we have 11, uh, the average age of our staff is 52 years old. So, uh, you know, that's not to say that um, anybody's retiring sooner or later. I just think, as a whole, the, the people uh, that I see every day and then the people in the surrounding areas that I know, whether they're in the city of Nashville or across Tennessee, we, you know, we have an aging uh, population of professionals uh, in the state of Tennessee. And so I kind of burned through this a little bit because I, I really 
I, I think I gave data and I, I was able to do some research and bring some numbers uh, and data to light. I'm more interested about the discussion surrounding this because I, I think you, the panel here definitely and John um, via you know the web, I'm sure everybody has their own experiences of what they went through with the periods of the, in the 80s. Uh, you know what I've been told is there was a, a gluttony of perfusionists uh, available in the in the mid 90s, and you know definitely there are shortages, um, or at least there are mentioned shortages. And we'll get into the discussion. I'd like to hear what people think about quote the shortage that is upon us right now, and if that is really true. So uh, cool. I'll, I'll, I'd like to open the floor up. Conversation. So let's let's go to the four panel view if we can, and um, while we're doing that, uh, we'll get everybody on board here. Or no, I guess it's a three panel, not four panel. Won't, oh, there it is, four panel. Yes. Hey, dude, that's pretty slick. Yeah. David like is it. really good at this stuff. Hey, John, you're back. Matt, thank you for powering through that. Um, I know that uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna uh, uh, delay your other one. I think in the interest of your time, our perfusion serve. Uh, students receiving adequate training. I think maybe that's a topic for another day, but I think it can be included in the discussion. Um, the first question, if you remember, is does anyone know why the OSU uh, uh, program closed? I have people asking online. And then also another question, and this could be to Deb or, or Ann, or Ann or anybody that knows, um, is, is there a method for reporting integrity or unprofessionalism uh, in uh, someone's behavior and uh, I guess professionally and to whom and what does it really mean and what does what happens when you do that? Yeah. Uh, to the question about the Ohio State program closing, I think uh, it had to do with a similar situation and I, I, this is just from secondhand knowledge of, of the institute. It had nothing to do with the the, the program, it was in good standing. Um, it, the university at the university level looking at, you know, programs that, because it's quite expensive to run a perfusion education department um, because you have staff and you, uh, just something that Matt said, 50 students, that's incredible. That's I mean, you need almost 4,000 cases just to get them their minimum of 75 cases. So I don't know exactly how they're going to really do that unless they have like a hundred clinical affiliates. But I, it had nothing to do with the Ohio State perfusion program. It was more of a broad brush about allied health professional mm -hmm. programs at the Institute, which happened to the University of Texas Health Science Center program, which was UT with Texas Art, which some of us graduated at from in the 80s and, and 90s. They mm -hmm. just did away with a lot of their certain level Mm -hmm. you know, academic programs. So. Yes, I understand. So it was, it was, sounds like it was more like a financial decision on the part of the university. But, yeah, the university not had nothing to do with how wonderful that program mm -hmm. was. Which brings up uh, Matt, John, Ann, Tammy, because you remember going to training, mm -hmm. okay? So you, so there's, there's, in my view, this is just my view, you have these financial interests, you have private practice perfusion companies that need people. You have the community that needs a certain number of people. You have institutional practices that need people. 
And so the question then becomes the risk to patients when we don't have enough people versus the quality of the care the patients are going to get by virtue of the the wellness or the 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 the, the intensity if you will of the training that the perfusion student gets before they go out and start practicing and so there's all of these very um very complex moving parts going all around and then of course for those of us that stayed in the business or those of us that still have 10 years, 15 years, maybe 20 years of practice left, what is that going to do to your professional standing with the market becomes flooded, your salaries, your benefits, how you're viewed versus as very needed and essential or a dime a dozen, so to speak. So Matt, you want to go first and we'll just go around on that? Yeah, and, and, and so I'll comment as well, just more, I can comment on the Vanderbilt program. You know, uh, um, by 2025, um, Vanderbilt has to turn their program into a, a master's program. And so going from whether it be a certificate or a bachelor's degree to, you know, to a master's program, um, it's, it's quite an expense. And, and you know, it's, it's a business. And when, when you, you're caught with, you know, saying you, we need X number of students, well, you know, we need X number of students at a certain um, tuition rate to make the, you know, to make the break-even point. Um, and, and sometimes when that, you know, happens and the numbers don't add up, uh, to, to, um, the point, you know, the program isn't worth having anymore. I will also say that, um, a lot of clinical sites that we have in Vanderbilt started putting, uh, students at clinical sites outside of Vanderbilt probably about three or four years ago. A lot of those clinical sites don't want, well, I'll just say greenhorns. They don't want students that haven't pumped any cases before. They don't want to put them on the rotation. So we at Vanderbilt have been left um, with that we take all the perfusion students right out of the gate. Right. And then once, you know, they've got 30, 40 cases under their belt, we'll put them out to the clinical sites. Um, the other part of that is when you've got, uh, you know, certain perfusion schools that they're all the well, you know, 90% of the cases that they do are at the clinical sites. You're competing with other perfusion programs for those clinical sites. Right. And there's only so many places out there that will accept students. Exactly. Um, I mean, it, it, it is not easy teaching students, as everybody on that panel probably knows. And uh, if you've never done it before, what is the, you know, change, change, is, change is hard. And so what is the advantage of doing it until someone's willing to step off that box? and say, no, we're going to be a clinical site because, you know, we, we want to help the society. Um, it's, it's, it's tough to make that transition. Well, should we be, you know, and, the, and you bring up such a good, uh, such a good point, you know, should, should these other schools be opening or should we be supporting the current schools that exist, that are, that are established, that have, you know, that have reputation? And then that you brought up the point of how are they going to get all of their cases? You know, mm -hmm. you could make every place a clinical site, but if you, in the entirety of your training, is doing two or two vessel or three vessel off pump, one two or three vessel off pump cabbages, or warm beating heart, you don't do type one dissections. If you don't do, you know, uh, thoraco thoraco uh, aneurysms. If you don't do 
selective cerebral perfusion, if you don't do, you know, VADs or whatever, if you're not trained in that, then what's your, what does your career look like? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And are you really trained um, adequately? Now, you may be trained adequately to go to a program that does 40 or 50 hearts a year that are going to be straightforward cabbages, but, you know, I mean, no one's ever... I realize that, you know, like anything, every profession has, you know, some people maybe that shouldn't be in it. But if you're training, shouldn't you be at a place where you're going to see all of that? Well, what about not everyone is of the right personality or skill set? Skill set to teach new people. Um, or may have the motivation to do that, and it's just a chore. Is that how we want to train our future colleagues? Mm. The ones that are going to be doing our case. Right. (laughs) Right. What a way to think about it. scary. Well, it is. I mean, you know, the point that Matt brought up, it's kudos to those programs like Vanderbilt and, you know, THI, CHI St. Luke's, the staff, you know, I didn't give them credit in my talk, but same like your your team. You're training the you know their first semester where they've not pumped one case, and then after you get them proficient in some skills where you can give them some independence, then they go out and then you get that next group. That is exhausting. It is hard, and um, so your team, you know, CHI St. Luke's team, they are you know pros at it and they they do it, but it is tough. And so how long do you do that before you throw your hands up and say, and then you don't want a clinical site or an instructor that isn't wanting to do that. Right. Like you said, that, that's, the, that's the key. You have to want to do that. And I respect anyone that says, no, I don't want to do that as much as having someone say, yes, I do. I mean, that's okay. Yeah. But I think that we have schools, we already have students trouble are having trouble getting their cases. Um, they're competing with other even students at the clinical site to get the cases is what I've been told. Yeah. So I understand we need more people in our profession, but do we really have the capabilities to put so many out there at the same time? I think the bar at the same quality. Yeah. yeah. I, right. I, right. I, think, I think any, we have these discussions program directors and on the board in terms of the case requirement. And I, I and anybody out there, I, I welcome your comment as well. I mean, we just feel like there there has to be, you can't go much lower in terms of what, you, you've, you've got to do the deed. It, it's a clinical profession. Um, you know, uh, simulation was talked about um, in terms of the deed put in with COVID especially. Um, and all allied health, uh, KHAP, there was a good meeting about that. They all chimed in, radiology, EMS, uh, scrub tech. You know, you can only get to so much through simulation, and you've just then you've just got to do it. So um, it's a fine line, and I think dilution is really scary. It's concerning. Agreed. Well, that's what was going to be my next question. Is it going to be a push to... Now you only need 50 cases to graduate. You know, it just, it, that doesn't seem like enough. I mean, it's not the flavor right now yeah. <laughs> among yeah. among the community. And I mean, I invite anyone to say if they think that, you know, less than 75 is, 
acceptable because I, we all know how we trained and maybe how many cases we did. And um, I would have liked to have gotten more, and I had like 130. Yeah. And I still was like, oh, I, I really wish I could do 25 more cases before I graduate, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the way to regulate yeah. this. Could you have yeah, oh, yeah, please. Yeah, so, I mean, everybody on the panel probably uh, seen this happen because you talked about that, um, you know, you have places, and we see this everywhere, where they really don't want to hire a new grad. And let me tell you something, that wasn't always that way. In the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and up through the mid-90s, if you were a new grad, it didn't matter really what school you came to. You came out of school, people wanted you. I knew people that came out of school, I'm not advocating this, came out as chiefs, and you know what? They did okay. I had some in my class that way. They did okay. It's unbelievable. And the training by all the schools was intense. They were highly selective with who they chose. They had small classes, and it was intense since day one until you graduated. And it didn't matter where you graduated. You were prepared. Somewhere in the mid-'90s, there was an inflection point where it changed. And I can tell you what I think, but I won't elaborate now. It started to become a shortage that was pretty critical, and in the school's mindset, some of them changed and started up with it being about volume. How many students can we admit per X period of time, per semester, for every six months, or whatever the school was? When that happened, and they also changed something that didn't exist before that in the mid-90s, which was sending students out to outside clinical sites. 99% of all the schools I knew of had their own major university with their own OR, and all the fusion staff gave you the same message every day. The message in the classroom mimicked what you saw in the OR, so your instruction was consistent. I'm not sure how it worked, to be honest with you, because I was not in that era, but you go to three different clinical sites, none of those people are instructors. They're just practicing perfusionists. And I asked perfusionists many times, are you told different things at different sites. Oh, absolutely. We're told different things at different sites. When the fusion student comes back, I know the schools then debrief all those students, and it's not necessarily about right or wrong. Maybe they can learn something by the diversity of seeing different things. If that's the case, perhaps it's positive. But the minute that it became about volume, all of a sudden, students came out and they were a problem. And I've seen this so many places where everywhere I go, by the way, Matt, I don't know where you get 12%. It's way higher than that, the people that need at least a part-time person. There's nobody out there that says, oh, we're totally fine. Even when everybody goes on vacation and a meeting, we're fine. We don't need any help. I don't run into that anywhere. Everybody needs a, a little bit of help. So it becomes about volume so we can fill warm bodies and seats. And then the quality dropped off dramatically. And then there was tremendous problems. And we still see to this day what you just said is absolutely true. I think it's about 35% of the places out there will not hire a new grad. And I've been to places that will not hire somebody with less than five years experience. I've seen that many times also. So if, if new programs are going to open and make it a, be about volume, we're going to be continuing down this path, I'm afraid. That's my opinion. Well, this is exactly, I'm sorry, forgive me. This is exactly what happened with specialty care, or not, not specialty care, Psychor, back in that day. And I'm starting to see the exact same thing happen again, and I can tell you the quality of the students that came out of that PSYCOR program, who got selected, you name it, left me with some very deep concerns, and that was way back then. We're talking about the 
or the early 90s. Yeah, it, it's so, a dilemma, and it's something that program directors talk about. And, you know, John and Matt, you bring up, you know, interesting things that, you know, are right on the forefront with program directors because it is a conflict of, of uh, you know, do you need to train more students because there's a shortage, but you need to maintain the quality absolutely that your patients and our community expect and deserve. I mean, you want somebody that uh, has the skills, knowledge, and the professional behaviors. And, you know, and I'm going to admit, you know, Texas Heart, our clinical site, that was our hub. We don't do the number of cases that we used to do. And, you know, it's for many, many reasons why we don't. I'm fortunate where the THI administration say you don't have to take a certain number of students. If you want to take two students, one student, six students, it's not about making money or meeting a quota. But that will change when the standards change because Matt mentioned in 2025 the standards will change and it will be an expectation to offer a master's degree when you complete your perfusion education. And THI and Vandy are certificate programs right now, and we will have to convert to a master's program, which means you have to be affiliated with the institution of higher learning. And, you know, and they are not going to let a, a department thrive when you only have six students. So we're either going to have to figure out a way to um, combine programs. This is my personal opinion, not program director, so that we can and have the same quality standards that are demanded by our accreditation and our community. We are, that's our colleagues, that's our future, and our patients deserve that, um, and our surgeons and everyone. Uh, I, I just can't see us getting back to 40 schools where everybody's got, you know, two students here, six students here, um, 50 students somewhere else. It's, that's going to be, um, I don't think it's going to be good for any. I well, I have so. a question. Yes, so if we're, it sounds like it's going to be a requirement. I'm not really familiar with this, so correct me if I'm wrong, that all perfusion schools will have to be master's programs by that date. Is that correct? Well, that's the that's the discussion. The, because the standards are, and Anne can speak to this because she's on the accreditation uh, committee, they're evaluated every five to seven years, and the push is towards a master's level. But yeah. I'll let you. It's a, it's a recommendation that um, all programs be moved to a master's. Um, it's been wild, hot, not hot, well, hotly debated in terms of, you know, does it, the market, does the market support that? Um, and, and what does the master's look like? Um, is, it, is it just um, a paper you write? I mean, there, if you look at it now, it's, it's ver there's variation. Yeah. So if you if that's the recommendation, now the discussion is what does it look like, and what what does that entail? But it but it is the recommendation that it moves that to that level. Well, the reason I'm asking no, is because if private industry staffing companies, if you will, want to make their own schools, they would have to be affiliated with the university to do that. Is it with that recommendation correct? I, I mean, you couldn't start the Joe Basha School of Perfusion, Oh. right? If if the master's is required, you will have to be. 
So is it a recommendation or is it a requirement? There's it's a, a big difference. It's a recommendation two. now, but when the next standards come out, mm -hmm. there's it will highly likely be a standard, unless you know the accreditation committee, which KHAP uh, decides ACP, differently. If they, yeah. if they what, have that recommendation to make so, it a Joe, standard. Sir, so could I give you an example right now? What what Deb's trying to Deb is spot on um, on it. So Vanderbilt students, as of last year, can never work in the state of New York. Exactly. What? Is never. that because of the state license requirement? Yes. 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 Okay. It's, oh. it's a certificate program, so they don't. They don't acknowledge uh, a certificate program because it's not affiliated with a degree-bearing program. That being said, and kind of uh, what I'm really concerned about is what you talk. Uh, I got two other points, and I'll let I'll get off. Um, the point that that, that John made um, concerning that you know we're diluting down people. Um, that coupled with having the private industry. Uh, you know, some of the biggest perfusion companies, um, you know, private perfusion companies in the country affiliating with degree-bearing programs, what, what does, you know, is that, is that, that, that seems to me like a, a little bit of a cross between church and state uh, to where you're feeding, you're, you're feeding the, the market to, to line your own pockets. And they, they're big enough to be affiliated with these uh, degree with these degree bearing programs, and you know one of those five that I, you know, I didn't want to mention any, but one of the five they're looking to open will be directly involved with um, one of the major perfusion private practice groups, mm -hmm. and that's exactly what they're going to do. Uh, history is going to repeat itself, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. What happens to people who are already say me? I have a certificate. Can I work in the state of New York? No. Nope. You didn't grandfather. No, 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 yeah, if you, you didn't, I grandfather. believe you can. Your grandfather didn't. Is the, that true or not? The grandfather period is over. Yes. There was a time when you could grandfather in, but now it is based on a degree-bearing program. But yes, right. you would have already had to have your Texas license. New York. Prior, New York. New right. York. That's what I meant. Right. Before I had to know to, about it. So, right. but if now I wanted to up and move to New York, you I'd have it. to get a master's in exactly. perfusion to be able to practice exactly. perfusion. So all all perfusionists in THIs. Uh, Certificate, like Matt said, if you graduated from the certificate program and did not grandfather in, which I think it ended like 2008, it's been a while, mm -hmm. you cannot practice, you cannot get a license in New York. Hmm. Which means you won't practice. Right, of course. And so that's a whole lot of certificate perfusion. Can I ask another question? When perfusion programs decided to go to a master's program, did the length or intensity or requirements of the program change, or did they just decide to keep the programs largely the same, and now your admission requirements were that you had to come in with a bachelor's degree? Um, that's a good question. Uh, for so some programs, they did lengthen, and there was a lot of discussion um, among, you know, perfusionists on the committee that the degree was instead of it rising up that we were watering down a master's degree but most programs have to in, in order to, to to get that last requirement are going to have to go at least another six months 
So for example, you know, we've lengthened our program back to 18 months, which it was 18 when we went through. And if we go to master's, it'll have to be at least 21 months. And um, so I don't know, Matt, do you know what Vanderbilt's plan is? They're already like two years already. So I don't know. That. We are a two year program, uh, 21 months. Um, but the, the plan is that we're um, going to uh, try to do a master's program by 2025. Vanderbilt uh, University and Vanderbilt University Medical Center split about three years ago. And that's where, that's where the, our biggest obstacle or hurdle is going to be, is we have to actually bridge across because uh, we're in the allied healthcare uh, school under Vanderbilt University Medical Center. But we, you know, the medical center cannot is not a degree um, awarding program. So we were going to have to reach out across. But uh, to Deb's point about combining, you know, programs to make, uh, in my opinion, uh, and I'm from St. Louis originally. Um, there's 18 or 19 cardiac programs in St. Louis currently, in in a, in a city that's less than a million people now. So. What I can never understand is why do you want 18 or 19 different places doing the same thing? Because no one becomes an expert, in my opinion, that way. And I'll leave it at that. I think cardiac surgery is no different than perfusion education. I think um, you need one or two centers, you know, locally uh, to, to do cardiac surgery in a city. That's my opinion. Um, and I think you know, regionally, you probably need one or two different programs. Uh, in, in perfusion education to do a really good job. So combining programs, I, I would be in favor of that. That is very, I think that's a, that's a very good point. I agree with that 100%. So Matt, in deference to your time, um, I'm going to, uh, just a couple of things before we leave. I'm setting up for the next Vanderbilt Faculty Forum uh, for May, and it's going to be VADS, right, with uh, Dr. Uh, Hoffman. And then uh, if I could, I don't know if you're available this weekend, but could we please try to connect so that we can maybe talk about a, a little more long-term ter long sort of solution to the topics. I think, uh, you know, and I don't think we have to have necessarily, uh, it's a lot of burden for you, but, um, you yeah, know, you're pretty good at doing this. So, you know, if people want to do it with you, I think it'd be great. And I'm probably going to come up in May and help you set up the, uh, the uh, lighting and all that kind of stuff just to make it maybe a little bit, although I like yours there right now, so that's actually pretty good. Even though there's something that's telling me that's not a real background. Something is, there's, a, there's something I'm getting. There's he's in Spain. Yeah, when you keep, are you, are you in Spain? He's at a perfusion meeting. That's actually classic. I, I, was, I would say something, but I won't. Okay. Oh, say so, it, Joe. You Matt, Matt, I, I can't, uh, they love beating on me, man. Okay, so I'm looking forward to, if we could talk this weekend, it would be fantastic. I finished the program Saturday, maybe on Sunday, I'll text you and we can maybe get together and just sort of iron this out because Deb is on the board and I haven't sent the application in yet. They're killing me on fees and because uh, there's a late uh, fee. Anne is on the board. Anne's on the board. Anne is on the board. He doesn't even know what he's saying. They're killing me with fees, dude. Okay, they're killing late fees now. So yeah, if we could talk on Sunday, it'd be great. And thank you so much for your being so patient, so understanding. We appreciate you very much. Um, John, you're going to stay with us, right? And I'm going to go and get Ann's uh, last lecture done. We were short yesterday, so we're going to run over today.
which should make up for the board. So I'm trying to We're stay staying legal. I'm trying to stay as <laughs> compliant as I can. It's been a great conversation, Matt. Thank you. Thank uh, you and, uh, thanks, I'll go thanks. get uh, uh, Ann's last talk ready, and then we'll finish it up. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thank Matt. Thank oh. One last thing on Matt's talk. I really wanted to ask a question. Um, so, perfusion student who graduates still can't take the boards until they have completed seventy-five cases. Right? They can't graduate. They, yeah, they can't graduate. They can't graduate. Okay. You need 100 cases, I think, to take the oh, boards. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. No, it's 75. 75 to take your boards. Is, oh, so. Your first to one, take your basic science exam. To take your the part one, the part academics. One. Oh, okay, part one. Okay. Then if you're going to go on and complete it and take the clinical applications part, you have to be practicing post-graduation and have 40 cases. 40 cases, okay. So Thanks. it's 75 cases. To graduate. That's to the graduate minimum. and take the basic science exam, yes. 40 cases post-graduation in order to take the practical or what well, used, used to be to the be orals. The oral, right? Yeah. Yes. And you, I wish we would go back to that. And they also I have think that was to the have best thing 10 could ever do. pediatric, at least 10 pediatric observations. So of that 75, if you don't pump pediatrics, you have to have an additional 10 minimum observation. observations yeah. and some programs have even that's the minimum yeah. even yeah. higher so some programs even have a higher so requirement mm -hmm. than you that are required to, to do pediatric rotations no. observe but well, yeah. you've got to get yeah. those observations yeah. Yeah. it's yes. required it is it's required. a standard because i, I just remember like I, I really enjoyed pediatric rotation and so i opted for additional pediatric mm -hmm. rotation but there were many of my classmates that did not care for it at all, but they were, I, I don't remember, I'm asking, were they still required to do a certain amount at that time, or is that something new? I don't remember the standards right, when you that, went through. Because I but, felt like I was asking for more, and they're asking for less. So yeah, I just But it is a standard curious. now, so I'm okay. not real sure. When. Well, the bottleneck on, on new new perfusionists coming out and being certified then is, is that first 75 cases, can they get those? So if that standard were, were lowered, then we would be getting more perfusionists through. Plus, we would be getting less less quality perfusionists uh, coming out. I mean, it depends you can on make your, the argument, right? For that. Right. So it depends the, on the program, right? Yeah. The control of this whole thing comes down to how many cases you know do they have to do in school to graduate, mm -hmm. and you guys set that at the board, right? But well, I think it goes back to what John was saying, though. You know, then that shifts the that shifts. Because if you, it's reps, like Ann said. So it shifts to the, 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 the employer to then continue train to develop and train that, that person. And then John just and made a point that, idea. you know, that's so, not. And I don't think 75 is enough cases. I don't either. Yeah, so. I, don't, I think going lower is, is foolhardy, and I, I can't support it's, that. It's, it's hard. They're, you know. Mm -hmm. 75 is, you know, it depends on the student. You know, some of them get, you know, but it's hard to get get a rhythm down with 75 cases. It took me 250, right. and I did 300 before I, before I was allowed to graduate. Wow. Well, I mean, a lot of when cases. you went through, John, what was it, several hundred cases? I don't remember. Yeah, it was a lot. Yeah. A couple, three, four a day. I was with a group. I was uh, not employed, but I was subcontracted with a group. In 2016, out of California, in California, and, and that group there hired uh, a new grad master's, master's program. One of the ones that was on 
the list that you were showing there, I won't mention. And I thought she was a wonderful student and started talking to her. Because I like to talk about the students, talk to the students about you know what's the latest and greatest that they're learning in school. And she said, well, I thought my education was terrible. I'm like, what are you talking about? It came from a master's program. She goes, most of the cases like, we didn't even do. We didn't complete all our classes. She had all these things negative to say. She was a, a very strong student. She was good. She, we, we, they kept her. But um, she didn't have a whole lot of good to say about the fact that um, you go to your rotations, and they don't necessarily get to do the case. Um, and I can tell you, um, back to backtrack what I was saying in the mid-'90s, um, I absolutely had to try to hire somebody. I hired someone from one of these volume-based programs. I had to sit with that student for 12 months oh. every day before I could let him free and my surgeon would let him be there without me. So wow. this is the kind of things that go on where people don't want to hire new grads because of the impression. And it doesn't take a whole lot of bad experiences in our small community before word gets out. And that's what's happened over the last 25 years. Well, we just hired two great ones. We did. Lydia from your program. Ramsha from up at uh, Rush. Uh, Rush. And so with that said, 